0: really really pleased to be here today with Dr. Chris Hammer who's a faculty member at Davis and Elkins College where he teaches sports psychology. He's also the coach of the women's triathlon team. He completed his PhD at the University of Utah and in addition He is a two-time Paralympian, having competed in triathlon at the Rio Olympics and uh, at the London Games, where he competed in three events, I believe, the 400 meters, 1,500 meters. and
1: Yeah, 800, 1,500. 800,
0: 1,500. Thanks for the correction. So needless to say, Chris is one of the most impressive individuals that I know and I know I'm going to embarrass him when I say that but he has the unique experience as an athlete as a sports psychology professor and as a coach and so it's a pleasure to have you here today Chris to share your experiences and insights within about injury thanks for being here
1: I'm happy to help yeah great
0: so maybe you can expand a little bit and just tell us talk a bit more about your athletic
1: background. Yeah so I grew up in Michigan playing all sorts of sports. uh, Ice hockey being my favorite one for as long as uh, as long as I could remember but it was the endurance sports specifically running where I found that I would have a future um, in terms of college scholarship and competing at a higher level. So that's, uh, that's the opportunity I pursued to to go to college on a just a partial scholarship, um, but I, I ran collegiately at Grand Valley State University, where I was a five-time NCAA Division II All-American, and after that was when I was recruited to compete for the Paralympic side of sports, which I had no idea even existed. I was uh, I was born with only one hand. I was I'm a congenital congenital amputee and you know my I lived my whole life not really thinking much of it I always participated in able-bodied sports but one of the the USA Paralympic track coaches saw me competing at an indoor meet when I was in college and recruited me for it and I was hesitant to pursue that opportunity just because I figured I was you know, doing just fine in able-bodied sports, I didn't need to go down that route, but eventually I was convinced to do so by teammates, friends who looked into it a bit more and said, you know, this is a really cool opportunity. You can be representing your country, travel the world, and continue to compete because I, I was a successful collegiate runner, but really my competitive days would have been done as, once my college uh, running was done for the most part. Right. So kind of gave me an opportunity to continue on and started with track and switched over to triathlon.
0: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned you had some initial apprehensions maybe about transitioning in in uh, Paralympic sport. Maybe you can speak
1: more about that. Yeah, so being an upper body, upper limb uh, disability or amputee, it doesn't affect my legs. So as a runner, I figured... I'm not really at any sort of disadvantage. And I, I felt like, you know, my whole life, I battled back against this idea of having a disability. And then if I were to do para sports, it would kind of be embracing the idea that, you know, I do have a disability and anyone who treated me, you know, differently for having one hand and would have, I'd be admitting they were right. And again, it goes back to when I'm running, it's the upper body impairment doesn't really make a difference anyway so there's all these things I was thinking that just kind of it it, it was just yeah apprehensive was the word but I went out and I tried and I saw how competitive it was and people aren't focusing on the disabilities they're focusing on you know on being an elite athlete especially in Europe and across the world in the U.S. it's more of a human interest story but Everywhere else, they take it really, really seriously, and it's getting better in the U.S. And I saw, like, hey, this—if I want to be competitive, I can't, you know, feel sorry for myself. I have to dive right in. And it was, you know, I still kind of felt that apprehension as long as I was a runner. Um, one quick aside: the story is, I, I was just, you know, tying my shoes on the track at the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, California, and someone came over to me and was just watching and said, you know, wow, that's really impressive. And I look over and they're a a below the knee amputee. So they run with the prosthetic. Like, You're impressed with me tying my shoes. Like you run like really fast with only one leg. And again, that's kind of when I understood like people aren't here to judge you on your disabilities. They are to judge you on what you're capable of doing as an athlete. So, but I still had that apprehension as long as I was a runner. As soon as I switched to triathlon, though, uh, it kind of changed because I I see how much slower I swim, uh, missing that paddle and, you know, having just the the arm kind of stunted in development as it is. So I guess I feel like I am more impaired, if that makes sense. But regardless, I've mostly just come to accept Parasport as the incredible opportunity it is to represent your country and to compete at a high level. Against world class competition
0: so you you mentioned, Chris, that you had a congenital disability that you were born with. Maybe you can elaborate on exactly the nature of of that.
1: yeah, so it's funny because my my parents have no idea they they didn't know I was going to have one hand when I was born, and they never knew the reason why I was what happened to have to have me you know, come out with only one hand, it was a surprise to them to be sure. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it really, I guess, it's an underdevelopment from the, the scap all the way down through. It's easiest for me to say it, you know, I, I was born with one hand, but the arm's shorter. And, and so it's slightly underdeveloped. So I, I don't know what would have caused that, but I, my parents just treated me growing up as if the same as they treated my older brother and younger sister. So it was never anything we really dwelled on. Like we we would make adaptations as necessary. Like for my baseball bat, I had a little prosthetic. Uh, Same with my hockey stick and same for golf clubs or shooting archery. Anything I do, we would adjust as necessary. A lot of times I just wouldn't use a prosthetic either. Just for general living, I guess we – when we saw a, would it be an occupational therapist when i was too young to remember i just never took to any sort of prosthetic for everyday living and that was for the best i think because I, I just learned to adapt and adjust as need be
0: right so it sounds like you never really thought of yourself as impaired in in any way or were never treated as such would that be
1: accurate yeah yeah, yeah. to be sure i just always anything anyone else could do I expected myself to be able to do as well
0: Mm -hmm. and you had mentioned you know with running as a collegiate runner your your arm and and your hand didn't really have any impact on your uh, your running but but that was maybe a bit different when you started competing in triathlon
1: yeah I picked up triathlon when I was living in the state of Utah and you know a lot of that involved riding the bike up mountain passes and down mountain passes and you know when you're only holding on with one hand and you're relatively new to competitive cycling that's pretty scary (laughs) just holding on for one hand going 40 plus sometimes 50 miles per hour and then when you're in the pool your hand is the paddle and you know I, i to be missing one you're gonna have to adjust for that as well but then there's also the injury component that comes along with so much imbalance. So any when you talk to a PT, a physio, physical therapist, you know oftentimes they equate any injury you have, or they they credit like imbalances for that. Well, I have not a slight imbalance, I have a large imbalance. So you know, I, I've kind of constantly dealing with chronic overuse injuries, and we often point back to, well, you have this big imbalance up top, which is gonna, it's gonna affect things.
0: So maybe you can talk a little bit more about the nature of some of the chronic injuries you've
1: had throughout your running
0: career and,
1: and your triathlon career. Yeah, it's funny because I was speaking with my wife the other day who is a PT and I was just talking about an injury and she said, Oh, what one? Is it your calf? I said, No, not that one. Is it your knee? I said, No, not that one. Is it your shoulder? I said, No. I said it's my hip flexor. So it's like, and that just, we laughed about it because it made me realize like, there's so much wrong with me just right now. And I consider myself relatively healthy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I and mean, there's stats about distance runners in general. I think 60% of our distance runners. I I could be exaggerating that number, but experience an injury over the course of a season or a year, whether it be minor or major. And so having been a a competitive runner, I guess if I want to date myself back to high school going on 20 years, I can't remember a year where I wasn't dealing with something. But the nature of endurance sports is it's often that chronic overuse rather than some acute onset type of injury. Mm-hmm. and so it's just and it's generally something that you can push through it's just it's just gonna persist so I mean I've had you know a, a shoulder that's been bugging me for years and it's I guess surgery is an option but then you're it's going to change timetables and things like that so it's just you you're just dealing with these things that you don't even really think about because they've become such a part of you
0: yeah so it sounds like it's, it's more common for you to have some kind of ailment than and, and that's more of the norm than, than to be completely healthy or, or what it means to be healthy is something that, you know, it's hard to even define
1: what that is. Uh, it's the nature of being an athlete. Like whatever you're doing, if you go, you know, lift weights or you run a hard workout or whatever and you're sore the next day, if it wasn't for that stimulus, if you just woke up and you didn't know why you were that sore, you, you'd go to the hospital. You'd be like, what's wrong with me? But just the nature of being an athlete and or just being someone who exercises and who gets sore from that, that exercise is you're going to be dealing with these physical sensations that aren't altogether pleasant.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to that point about dealing with pain and and sort of recognizing signs and symptoms of, or differentiating when something is benign and versus when it's more sinister or when, you know, that pain is maybe a sign that there's damage being caused. So I'll come back to that. Yeah. Um, Part part of one of the many reasons I wanted to interview you, Chris, as I mentioned, you have a very diverse background, both as a coach and as an athlete. And what I didn't mention in in um, your introducing you is that your research also focuses on this idea of stress-related growth or post-traumatic growth after injury. And maybe you can talk a little bit more about some of the research that you've done as part of your doctoral research.
1: Yeah, and it's really just this very, I don't want to say generic, but this idea has you know persisted throughout time that when people grow through these these bad events that can happen to you if the I, i'd always think about it like a house right like an earthquake comes i haven't thought about this in a while <laughs> but like an earthquake can like comes in it 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 rocks your house like the earthquake is this traumatic event and the house is your assumptive it's your world view and it, it destroys your house and you have to put your house back together you need to live somewhere right so you really have three options you can just build a a, build a house back up but not a very strong house and you know maybe you're scared that something's just going to happen again and your house is going to get destroyed so you know this is an example of your worldview changing for the the worse or you could maybe just build that house back up to how it was before and pretend the event never happened. And, you know, you're still susceptible for future bad events to take place, but at least, you know, you're, you're kind of back to that that base level or, and this is the preferred outcome I would think is that you build a bigger, better, stronger house. And this is, you're, you're learning and you're growing from the experience. And a lot of people who face these traumatic events in my research specifically dealt with people with disabilities and acquired disabilities. They've built that house back up to be bigger, better, and stronger. And sport actually played a role in that, in that ability for them to grow from the traumatic event. And then it, it was the traumatic event would be, you know, losing a limb or gaining a, a permanent disability.
0: Mm-hmm. So that that's a really interesting point you brought up that, the injury experience can shatter or really profoundly alter someone's perspective or view of the world. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that, maybe some examples or some insights on the the types of uh, ways in which one's perspective is changed or altered after a life-changing injury.
1: Yeah, I'd have to, I'm trying to think of some, of so a lot of there's a lot of things that can happen right like for one your physical abilities to operate or the the way that you physically function in the world can be taken away from you and people want to feel competent they want to feel like they, they can make their way in the world they don't need to rely on other people that they are self-sufficient and when you acquire a, a disability that affects your physical functioning that's by definition almost uh, you're impaired and so this is this is the case for a lot of of the people who were in my studies who acquired a disability they 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 felt like they're they couldn't function in the world as well anymore and a lot of people tie their self-worth to how well they they you know they can function and, and so their physical um yeah, once that's taken away, it's just, it really shat, that's the, one of the main things that shatters their worldview, and that goes just the idea of, you know, people, they, they want to feel competent, and that's taken away, and then it's yeah. also, they're relying on people, and they don't feel self-sufficient, they don't feel as autonomous as they once did, so that was, that was a really big shock to a lot of people, and that's something they have to work through.
0: Mm. So, you mentioned a, a number of challenges in particular whether it's you know losing that you know you're a highly functioning individual or high performance athlete for instance and then you become injured and, and lose that sense of competence or your ability to navigate the world to manage day-to-day tasks becomes difficult let alone high performance sport um, you mentioned sort of self-worth um, Feelings of a lack of autonomy or lack of control. Um, it sounds like injury presents many challenges. Are there other specific challenges that um, that injured athletes, Paralympians, or
1: other athletes in general may face? Yeah, I think speaking specific for or speaking for Paralympians or para athletes in general is they have to overcome kind of this negative trying to think of the words here for instance when, when I go out and about it's funny because how many people you know they'll they just look at you different and they think they think you need help with everything they like I I'm sure you know if I'm, I'm holding something people are being polite but it's always like hey let me get this door for you or can I help you carry that and so I think they just think that you're less able so para-athletes I think are generally trying to they're over trying to overcome that perception like hey we it might be different how we we go about our daily tasks but by no means are we unable to do so or do we require help to do so and so that's like it's funny because I speaking with people who work with both para-athletes and able-bodied athletes like bike mechanics for instance who we take with us to some international competitions they've made the comment before how it's funny how much more needy the able-bodied athletes are than the para-athletes just because i think para-athletes are just accustomed to to facing challenges and finding ways to adapt and overcome that's just kind of in in their dna whereas able-bodied people maybe more generally they, they when they face a unique challenge they might look they might not be as accustomed to it and look for an easier way out or for help
0: right so i i really like how you phrase that that it's kind of part of their dna i guess you know especially in your case you know when you're you're born um with a congenital disability that it, it forces you i suppose to be creative to adapt to find strategies um and and also that the point that you mentioned about sort of the social perceptions and and changing or or addressing those perceptions i imagine must be challenging at times um,
1: yeah it's not anything i really ever give too much or gave too much thought to i think in some ways as a congenital person with a, a con, with a congenital impairment it's the only way i've ever known so a common question i'll get or i used to get at least was People would say, "What's it like having one hand?" And I would always, I always say, "What's it like having two hands?" Because I don't know any different. I mean, to me, it's it's pretty simple. Like if I want to pick something up, there's no choice to be made. It's you know, it's one hand. I do it. But for for uh, everyone else or most other people, like I, I, I don't even know. It seems like that'd be crazy. All the all the things you can hold at one time, or things you could. Can... So it's it's the only way I've ever known. Whereas someone who acquires a disability, let's say you lose a hand or you lose a leg or something, and then you have something to compare it to, then I think it's that's when I can't even imagine that situation. Cause I, I think that's completely different even than a congenital mm-hmm. amputee, where you have to learn to do things completely different from how you originally knew how to do things.
0: Right. So is that that point about comparison, is that does that make it harder i mean you mentioned that for you this is the only way you've known and, and yeah. like someone who was born with two hands that's what they know um is, so in a sense i guess there's never been quote unquote an adjustment for you but it sounds like if you i mean clearly i imagine there are some significant adjustments that you've mentioned
1: for someone who acquires a disability yeah and so i i do think that's kind of a unique situation Mm -hmm. and something that I I, I mean, even I could speak to, you know, some aspects of the challenges someone with a similar impairment such as mine might face, but I can't speak to the adjustment that they'd have to make. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, You were talking a few minutes ago about the fact that you, you have chronic injuries. Is that, fairly common for distance athletes or para olympians
1: or triathletes I would think for, yeah i think the injuries i have are probably just characteristic of any any runner who's been running who has as many miles as i have on them and who's trains yeah consistently i i don't think i i don't think any of my injuries are necessarily because i'm a para athlete right. i think it's just because of the level i train at and it's you know it, this year is all messed up with tokyo 2020 being pushed back to 2021 so for a while there i was just thinking like my timeline is is all, end of august 2020 and whatever i have like i'm trying to push through and now we're kind of in a state of limbo where for a while i thought well Do I have the opportunity to try to heal up? But even then, it could literally take weeks or months to get my body fully healed. And so it's just, I'm choosing to train through and to train through and just to to deal with these these constant aches and pains and just, yeah, chronic injuries.
0: Yeah, so to your point, Chris, about the uncertainties of our current uh, coronavirus circumstances, uh, maybe you can elaborate specifically on some of the uncertainties that athletes experience in terms of chronic injury or recovery from chronic injury.
1: Yeah, I think what's tough about injury is you can't see—you can't see the inside of your body. You don't know what kind of recovery is happening. So you, you can trust the, your physio, your PT, you can trust your doctors, sports med, your trainers, whoever it is, but really you're kind of relying on their on what they have to say because you can't look and see that it's healing. Like maybe you can look at a, a scab or a scar and see it fade away over time, but you can't look at a, a strained calf and see like, are these fibers uh, being repaired properly? How close am I for it to be in 100%? So there's a lot of uncertainty there. And then once you do feel like it's back to where it needs to be, it's kind of a leap of faith to say, okay, now let's put it to the test.
0: Mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned a, a, a leap of faith. Are, are there any ways to know that some, someone or that you're ready to return after either chronic injury or maybe an acute injury are there any signs
1: or indicators i think you generally are testing yourself you're general you're you're you don't go from zero to a hundred right like you're you should kind of like follow a stair step sort of progression where you're doing progressively more challenging or demanding tasks that are related to your sport to to build that confidence that you can that you can compete again so Mm -hmm. hopefully you're not you're not going from you know laying on the bed to doing a race that you're simulating things um like a race in between that you're doing harder workouts or or easy runs harder runs workouts like interval training and so you're not you're not just praying like okay i hopefully this is all better and i haven't tested it but now it's time to, to go
0: right so it's it's not just a matter of blind faith but there's a progression or a sequence of you know physical tests perhaps or um you know maybe injury specific or sport specific things that one progresses through before they ideally resume their their uh, competitive play
1: yeah yeah for sure
0: and and what happens earlier you mentioned this idea of a time frame so what happens if there's a competition coming up in a few weeks and one hasn't progressed through that sequence. Uh, how, how is that handled or does that occur? <laughs>
1: it certainly occurs. And I've unfortunately had to, it, I guess it depends what kind of athlete you are. If you are, say you have a race that you have to complete in order to qualify for a more important race or, to get your points, to qualify for the the Paralympics or Olympic games even. Sometimes you have to race injured and you try to be as smart about it as you can. You really work with your sports med team. You use whatever modalities you can to put yourself in the best possible position to perform. But really, that's not ideal. And that's just the nature of competitive sports mm-hmm. is that you sometimes you have to, you push through it and sometimes that results in delaying the recovery process or even making your injury worse and those are just things that you have to weigh the the benefits and the consequences of making that decision it's just it's the unfortunate reality of of sports like if for i i guess for me the pinnacle of competition is the paralympics and that's what i'm training for if i if i was injured going into the paralympics but i was qualified i would race the paralympics
0: Mm -hmm. so when you're sort of making this cost benefit analysis or weighing the pros and cons of competing it sounds like the importance of the competition particularly factors into that decision
1: yeah certainly so for example for me today i i'm this last week i've been i've had a bit of an aggravated hip flexor and i did my run i was going to finish up with some hill strides and it took and i I stood at the bottom of this hill and i just was thinking like is it worth it like what happened if if i do these strides and i aggravate it and push back my recovery a little bit like am i really is it what kind of benefit am i gaining so i did that that the cost benefit analysis in my head and said, no, it's not worth it. Let's be smart about this small workout. Whereas if I'm standing on the start line of an important race, is it worth it? Yeah, it probably is. Mm-hmm.
0: So, how do you, previously I mentioned that point about distinguishing between pain that's harmless versus more harmful? How do you make those judgments or decisions, either in training or in
1: competition? It's way easier for the athlete to make it. As a coach, I'm always erring on the side of caution. I don't want any of my athletes to get hurt. I don't want to ask them to do something that's not good for them. Mm -hmm. As an athlete, it's easy for me to push myself and to make that decision. So it's, 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 yeah, it's tough. So when I look at it from different perspectives, sometimes even when I look at my own training, I try to put my coach hat on. If I was my coach, what would I want me to do? As an athlete, I always want to, I want to run through the wall, the brick wall and just go, 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 go. So sometimes I have to put that coach hat on. But I think as I I kind of forgot your question. uh, But yeah, I think it's easier for the athlete to decide to do something that might have detrimental consequences. As a coach, I don't want to make that decision. I never want to decide for them to do something that might hurt them.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the question was about sort of distinguishing between pain and how you know when it's um, you know, pu- pushing through is, is harmful to you and how you, you know when it's not. And it sounds like as a coach, you're not, of course, inside yeah. the body of your athletes and so, you mentioned your tendency is to be more cautious and, and if if they express pain, would it be correct that you're, you're, as a coach, the tendency is to try and sort of pull them back on, on what they're doing, whereas that might not be the case for you, the athlete?
1: Almost certainly. And you have to know your athletes, obviously. Some athletes, you know, they want to, they're looking for a way to, they're looking for a way not to get in that workout maybe get to the cafeteria early and some athletes they it's the hardest thing in the world for them to to take a a workout off i always tell athletes especially the ones who are extra determined that it takes more courage to take a day off than it does to push through a day and i i firmly believe that for you know the really competitive athletes out there yeah
0: so for the athlete whose mindset is kind of pushing through pain or not setting limits and you know wanting to achieve athletic uh greatness they um you know there's a need sometimes to temper their their involvement or or enthusiasm maybe and hold them back
1: yeah i one of my athletes who won the individual NCAA division two national championships in triathlon this past year. She's one of the hardest workers I know. And it's, you do a running workout with her and it sounds like she's going to die. Like you just, she's pushing herself so hard and she only knows that one speed. So it's my job to, to pull her back. And, you know, I think, luckily knock on wood, she's been fairly healthy, but you know, it's my fear if someone like her, starts to develop a, a, some sort of injury or overuse injury. She's not going to be able to pull herself back, and that's where it's my job to do so.
0: Sure, you earlier you touched on that point about having trust in your sport medicine practitioners or providers. So, from an athlete perspective, what helps build that trust or that sense that
1: the practitioner is competent? Yeah, that's the challenge. Is they have to know they have to be competent for me to, to, to put my trust into them. So luckily my wife is a PT. And so I, I I obviously know her pretty well. And so I trust her, but she's not, I, when I'm traveling and we always bring PTs with us or a a sports med team with us to competitions. And one of the ways that you can quickly not have faith in them is that they don't seem to really understand your sport or know your sport, and they, they they need to be able to understand your demands of your sport and be able to relate to you. Right, and I think that's critically important. for a PT to be like if they're going to work with a, with a triathlete, they should know about the demands of what triathlon training looks like. They should know what the sport of triathlon looks like. They shouldn't be asking, "Oh, what? So, what do you do in the triathlon?" And I think that goes with any sport. Like you should, right. I think that's going to build a trust in the athlete, an initial trust in the athlete, or an initial trust of the athlete in that sports med practitioner if the sports med practitioner can connect on that most basic level by knowing the sport.
0: Right. Are, are there other ways to uh, gain trust, perhaps through the communication uh, that the practitioner provides?
1: Yeah, if they can tell it, it's always important to me. I want to know why they're doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't believe in you know, magic bullets or whatever to fix something. I want to know what they're doing or how that's going to help make me feel better. And so if they can explain that to me, that's going to boost my confidence in them and my trust in them.
0: Mm-hmm. So you allude to it in your response, but I want to just ask you, um what what are um maybe you can speak a little bit more about the importance of receiving education and information about the nature of your injuries
1: uh sorry i was distracted so you're fine you're fine um so the question is what's sorry
0: so, yeah maybe you can just talk a little bit about the value or importance of receiving information or education about the nature of your injuries
1: I feel like if, if I'm educated about my injury, I'm, I better understand what's happening. I feel like I, I can trust the process more. I can, I'm doing, I'm actually doing some reading now on just basic physiology type things with the body. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm understanding how, you know, when you run, your bones break down and it's, it's constantly being regenerated and the bad or the broken down cells are being are being like taken out and replaced with good ones and just the fact that i'm understanding like this is constantly happening it mm-hmm. helps me to understand what's natural in the process and I, I like to know what's going on inside my body so that i know what yeah it's natural like even it, i guess that's essentially it it's just knowing I just like knowing what's going on. It gives me comfort for a different reason.
0: So what does that mean specifically when you say that information helps you trust the process?
1: Yeah, it's just that like, this is, I'm not unique in this injury. People have had this injury, people recovered from this injury. And it's, so if I know that, you know, I'm, my body's pretty much the same as any other person's body out there it's going to recover the same way and the physio the pt i'm working with is going has rehabbed people who've had the similar injuries the same way and it's just it's kind of just understanding everything Someone that's i guess that's my nature is i just i can't just close my eyes and be like okay i trust you take care of it i just want to know what's going on Right, And that makes me feel like, okay, I understand what's going on. This is, let's go for it.
0: Right. So when the people you're working with who are facilitating your recovery, when they can articulate or communicate uh, clearly about the nature of what's happened to you or changes in your body or what's happening when you're recovering, that that helps you, um, feel more confident in them as a practitioner and also in what they're prescribing.
1: Yeah, I mean that the body's very complicated and I can't even begin to I'm just scratching the surface of understanding some of these things that are going on. So if someone can can talk to me about the specifics, it makes me believe that they know their stuff and if they know their stuff as it relates to you know the academic sides of of physiology or whatnot, then I trust that they also know what to do when it comes to the recovery modalities.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit, Chris, about uh, some of the pain that's associated with injury. And that pain could be either physical or psychological.
1: Pain's interesting because I sort of just accepted that pain's you know, a facet of my life. And I try to detach any meaning from that pain. Like I, it's a sensation and it's there, but its role is really just to relay information to me. It's not something that I need to freak out about. Mm -hmm. So it's, I guess if I think, if I really dwell on the pain, it's like, yeah, I'm kind of constantly living in pain. If I think of how my shoulders always sore. My other injuries are always sore, but I don't, I, I, I wish there's another word besides pain because I don't, I'm not in pain. If that makes sense, because I just don't allow it to have that power over me. Okay. I I just embrace, I think of it differently.
0: So you're, because you think of it differently and I want to just dive into that point a bit more. Yeah. Because you think of it, Differently than it, it doesn't. You said it doesn't have meaning to you, or
1: it does have meaning to me, just not a painful meaning to me. I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's more of just a feedback mechanism, right? Like I try to be very mindful of. I know mindfulness practice is very. It's very popular right now. Yeah. And I guess, and especially within in the U.S. within the USOC, a lot of their Sports like professionals are really pushing it as well. But I do, I do think there's significant value to being mindful about certain things. And injuries are one of them. Or at least discomfort is one of those things. Mm-hmm. Like you can recognize that sensation of pain is there. But that's all you need to do is recognize it. You don't need to dwell on it or give it power, I guess.
0: Okay. So for you, the idea of mindfulness as it relates to pain or discomfort specifically, is really about recognizing it, using it as a kind of information feedback mechanism. Yeah. Um, Recognizing that it's there and getting that information, but not dwelling on it, or as you say, giving it power. Yeah,
1: because it's the same as in a race. I have to be in, in a sprint triathlon, which is the distance I'm doing. You know, you're constantly redlining. You're going you're going essentially as hard as you can you're, you're walking that very very fine line so you have to be very you have to be able to be so in tune with your body and when you're in tune with your body like it hurts a lot to race mm-hmm. if but if, if it hurt in that way then you know you wouldn't be able to you would you wouldn't push yourself that hard so rather than try to distract myself from the the sensations you're feeling or the pain whatever you want to call it you are like so in tune with that pain mm-hmm. but you just don't like yeah like you said is I, I you don't give it that power you just mm-hmm. you it's it's kind of weird to, to talk about or to think about but um so yeah that's, start- that's kind of my approach to it
0: it sounds like when you're competing, you said you're on the verge of redlining. So, you know, like you're really pushing your physiological systems to the limit. And it sounds like you're associating to the pain or you're really kind of aware of what you're experiencing in terms of your your body and um, your physical states as you're racing. Um, but that that's important or
1: there, there's value in that. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, exactly. Like if you, the last thing you want to do is to be out there and to distract yourself from the pain because mm-hmm. then you're probably not pushing hard enough. Right. My old college coach used to always say, "It's not going to tickle." <laughs> that's you know, that's putting it lightly, obviously. Mm-hmm. But that's if if it did, you know, if everyone would be out there doing it. Like I always tell my athletes, like if it hurts <laughs> in that way, then you know you're doing something right because mm-hmm. that's the sensations you need to have mm-hmm. and. So, but if you're, if you're trying to distract yourself, if you're tuning, if, then you're, you're not going to know that you're pushing it hard enough. Mm-hmm. It,
0: it sounds like you've developed some very, fairly strong and robust pain coping mechanisms. Would you, um, so in advocating suggestions to other athletes, particularly going, those going through injury, What would you suggest in terms of pain management
1: yeah I think I come from I guess I I really think my approach comes from just how I was raised when I played ice hockey I was I was always one of the smallest guys out there but I wasn't afraid to you know try to take on you know body checking it's legal in hockey like the biggest guy out there and I'd constantly get thrown around and I'd get beat up. I'd never be afraid to go into the boards or with anyone on any. So, and I, I'm sure I, especially in what we know now about concussions and head injuries, like I'm sure some of the things I was doing as a as small uh, hockey player wasn't necessarily good for my health, but it's the mindset I had was just that, you know, the it, it's that really Cliche saying, I guess, like the pain is temporary, pride is forever. It's like I was never going, that was what I was always going for is, you know, the, any pain or whatever I feel or any, what, like, yeah, it might hurt to get leveled by a guy who's twice my size, but it's, you have to go through that kind of thing if you want to achieve the success you want to have. So I guess a roundabout way of answering your question is you have to think what is the pain kind of in service of? And so that's the mindset you have to have when you're in, in terms of coping with pain. It's like realize that you you have to experience this pain to some degree to accomplish any goal that's worth accomplishing. Mm-hmm. Once you accept that, then you're able to, I think, put yourself in the position where you're going to experience pain. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you don't think that, if you don't think that pain's going to lead to any consequence of worth any of any value, then why, why is it worth doing it? So it's, yeah, I, I know I'm rambling on, but it's that mindset basically, that you have to go through this to accomplish something worth accomplishing.
0: Right. So almost a sort of acceptance or willingness to embrace pain is, is needed. I think, as you said, in service of achieving athletic uh, attainment or accomplishment. Yeah. Yeah. And as a coach, you know, you you relayed the um, anecdote about your athlete who only knows how to go sort of full tilt. Um, is that is that mindset different as a coach in terms of embracing pain, accepting it? Is that the same
1: as a coach? Yeah, it's so different because as a coach, you're always thinking, like, what can I... You're thinking about what's best for the athlete And so I, I never want to see anyone get hurt. So, you know, I'm always like telling them or the people who are, you know, who don't know how to, who only know how to go all out. It's like, I'm always trying to hold them back. Mm -hmm. And I know I, it's funny because I admire that mindset that they have of only knowing to go full, like go hard and to push through pain and all that. So it it is different when I have my coach hat on, I'm you know, I'm trying to hold them back, but when I have my athlete hat on, I'm just like admiring that mindset. So I think that's why it's so important to have a coach or someone to to hold you back and to to because yeah, otherwise you you might not be doing things that are good for your body and you might not be doing things that are good for your athletic performance ultimately also.
0: Yeah. Um you, you touched on My next question a little bit when you were talking about um, how um, an acquired disability can really sort of shatter someone's assumptions about the world or their perspective or worldview. Um, Maybe you can talk a little bit more about some of the thoughts and emotions that an athlete has after an injury. It could be either chronic or acute injuries.
1: I think despair is probably the best word I can think of especially depending on the timing you think about everything that's in front of you maybe not being in front of you anymore you think of what was behind you the training you've put in being all for nothing you th- I think it's a tendency of individuals to jump to jump to the worst case scenario and think it's the end of the world so despair is the word any time a new injury comes up is you just despair. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. um, are, are there other thoughts or emotions that accompany the injury experience?
1: You ruminate, that's for sure. You, that's all you can think about. It's, it, it occupies so much of your mind, mm-hmm. right? For, until, until you're back better, I think an injury occupies an athlete's mind constantly so it's mm-hmm. just that that rumination and ruminating about the consequences of the injury like maybe this will happen maybe i can adjust my timeline like this and just you you go through all the different variables or the options available to you mm-hmm. and it just it, it's constant on your mind
0: yeah so you're you're constantly thinking about uncertainties or what if kinds of questions is that right
1: I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and does that change at all sort of over time or do the thoughts and emotions vary uh, according to, you know, from maybe the initial onset of an injury to maybe the sort of, as you get closer
1: maybe to return
0: to sport?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the initial, most people are going to jump to that worst case scenario. And they might need someone to, you know, walk them down from that edge to like, hey, this isn't the end of the world. Like, for example, for whatever reason, this was just about, a, gosh, a week or so ago, a week and a half ago, I, I was going to do a run right after a bike session. So that's called a brick workout. And I, my leg just wouldn't bend. And I was like, there's something wrong with my knee. And so I was at, at, talking to my wife about surgery and all this, like, what's that look like? And then the next day, it was fine. It was just, it was locked up for some reason. But of course, the first thing I think about is, okay, like, surgery is what? Like, how long does it take to clean out, like, a meniscus or whatever? Did a scope and recovery? And mm-hmm. so, so I think you initially jump to that worst case scenario. You need someone to to kind of, just like walk you walk you back from the edge of the cliff and then once you're in that rehabilitation process and you see yourself making progress you see a timeline that's you know more realistic laid out in front of you and you think okay there's there's no need to overreact as i did but you still obviously you're worried and you until you, you are back and you prove that you regained your fitness or that you're still fit
0: yeah so in that sort of initial time frame maybe when there's uncertainty about what you've actually done or you know you mentioned your knee locking um, when you're not really sure what's happened the severity or the extent of the injury then maybe there's excuse me a tendency to catastrophize or um, to really have heightened kind of
1: worry yeah Yeah, and I think that's just a human tendency regardless of a situation is, Mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't have to even be injury.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, And um, so maybe you can talk about some ways either in your experiences as an athlete or as uh, knowledge as a researcher, coach, um, what are some thoughts on ways that athletes might be able to manage some of those thoughts or emotions, things like despair, for instance?
1: I think it's so valuable to have a network of people, especially people who've experienced, you know, injuries and things like that. So people who you, who you can talk to and like, hey, what was your experience with this injury? And they can, oftentimes what they're gonna tell you, it will shed some light on, hey, it's not gonna be as bad as I think it could be. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's useful to be able to, to know, like other people have experienced this, they've come through just fine. Yeah. This is what it was like for them. It's likely going to be similar for me. So right. why am I jumping in the worst case scenario?
0: Right, so having some other um, reference points or maybe role models, uh, people that you yeah. can reach out to who have had some similar experiences um, to find out what they went through can be helpful?
1: Yeah, certainly.
0: Okay. Um Any other thoughts um, or maybe ways that the injured athlete might be able to uh, adjust or effectively cope with some of the negative thoughts and emotions? I think
1: one issue is people who are so invested in this one thing. If sport is your entire life and then all of a sudden it's taken away from you, it's like it, albeit temporarily. It's like your life is taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's so valuable for athletes, even serious elite level athletes, to have other things in their life, to have other hobbies or just something that when sport is temporarily taken, taken away from them, they can, you know, in, they lean on another pillar of their life. Right. But so many people, it seems like, or so many athletes, it seems like, their life is only sport. And so when that's taken away, they have nothing else to lean on and that could lead to negatives across, you know, Mm -hmm. across the board.
0: Right. So it's helpful to have other interests or maybe particularly during the injury recovery timeframe to have other activities uh, to engage in uh, to keep one's mind occupied or, um, you know, but also, it sounds like there's that strong, strong sense of self-identification with the sport. Right. So yeah. The idea that it's, you know, sport isn't just something that I do, but it's who I am. Yeah. And, you know, and then when that's taken away, they're sort of left with that, that void. Um, yeah. So definitely having some other interests or activities, pursuits outside
1: of sport sounds like it's, um, valuable. Yeah, and it's funny that even goes beyond the injury standpoint. Just like <laughs> performance in general, a lot of my college teammates, or not a lot, a few of them, went on to run professionally after, in term with a small, professional team where all you do is run. So before, you know, they were a student pursuing a degree. They had, you know, friends and hobbies, but then they went to this, professional running team where all they were were runners. And they ran worse than they did in college, which you right. would wouldn't think that would be the case. But that's all they had was running, whereas before they had they had more in their life and they were running better. And I think maybe that's not the sole reason, but I think that's a contributor, contributing so, factor.
0: Sure. So um, having, w- regardless of whether it's uh, whether the athlete is injured or not, there may be some value or benefit in having outside. Um, interests to engage in, or or to focus on, uh, being more well-rounded. I guess. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, what what are some expectations that athletes commonly have about their recovery? Or or what yeah. role do expectations play in
1: injury recovery? So I think the expect yeah that they, they expect. It's funny because they they expect the worst that when they get injured, that you know it's they' it's a serious injury. but then they expect during the rehabilitation process, I think they often expect to be able to do more than they should they it's good for them to do. Mm-hmm. And that's where the your sportsman team, people who are knowledgeable, are so vitally important to be able to tell you what you can and cannot do or should. Or should not do during that process mm-hmm. because people—it's such—it doesn't make any sense that you ex, you expect the worst when you get injured, then you expect to be able to do so much during this process, and um, so that's the first thing I think is that it's just the nature of athletes, and yeah, people in general, right? Um, Go, and on, so. I, yeah, and then I think also athletes expect. <laughs> especially elite level athletes. I think they expect people to, uh, they expect their sports med team and people to, to be a hundred percent invested into their recovery. And so now I'm speaking kind of as a coach, like if one of my athletes are, is injured, I tell them rehabilitation is your job. Like no one's going to be more invested in your rehabilitation than you are, or it's not your job, it's your sport at this point. Right. So they're not going to drag you to the training room like this is this is what you need to do you need to take accountability and i think too many injured athletes expect other people to their sports med team to take care of them and to to make everything all right but they have to play a a huge role right
0: so as a coach you clarify that the the onus is still on the athlete's shoulders to assume responsibility for their recovery, and it also sounds like you encourage them to sort of turn their rehabilitation into their kind of new competitive challenge. Would that? Yeah, be-
1: in a way. I mean, in as far as it's safe for them to do so, mm-hmm. I, I still want to keep them as a coach. Like I want to keep them around the team as much as possible. I don't want mm-hmm. to isolate them, but like. And I have an athlete right now who's dealing with some back issues and, you know, she can't really swim, bike or run, but I said, well, what can you do? Core, hip, glute type stability, strengthening stuff. It's like, well, mm-hmm. let's attack that as if this is your sport right now. And so, right. yeah, so
0: you're constantly kind of identifying areas that they can work on. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, irrespective of, of the things or areas where they're limited. Um, yeah. And you mentioned, Chris, the benefit of having the athlete involved in the, the team or keeping them around. Maybe you can elaborate on that a bit more.
1: Yeah, I think athletes, especially injured athletes, can be very fragile. They, If so much of their identity lies in themselves as being an athlete, once that's taken away or once it's harmed via the injury, like, they're, they're in a delicate spot right now. So you want them to maintain that athlete persona mm-hmm. to as high of a degree as you can and to be, feel like they're still involved with the team, they're still a part of the team, because they are, even though they might not feel that way if they're completely removed. Mm-hmm. So I want, I want them around, like, around as much as possible. And it's hard. That's one of the things that makes being an injured athlete hard is because it's not taking time off like you you might have more if you're if you're watching practice or participating in practice then going to rehab after like that might be more like more time you're spending dedicated to your sport than before even mm-hmm. but i so, think that's best for their their psyche at least
0: right so as a coach it sounds like you're spending time really sort of conceptualizing what the rehab rehabilitation period is all about right and sort of uh, i like that idea about kind of defining it as well it's not just time off right but um you know you're still kind of an athlete you're still an athlete and you're still engaging in modified training whatever that might be yeah um so It's also interesting, I guess, because on the one hand, you mentioned that, you know, the athlete should develop outside interests so that they can cope, but also to simultaneously maintain their role and identity as an athlete. Maybe you can
1: speak to that. Being an athlete, (laughs) you have to have time management, or I should say to do it well, because it is, it's a it, it it's difficult. There's no way around it but it doesn't mean it can't be done you can you can be a good student you can have hobbies and friends outside of class and outside of sport you can there's a lot of time in the day and I I guess my rant would be right now is with my current student athletes how much time they spend on their phones or their screen time if you take that away there's a few extra hours a day I mean upwards of like four or five hours a day so yeah. as long as you know how to time manage, there's plenty of time to get everything done yeah it's, but that you just have to be committed to that you have to you have to change your habits, which is right. much easier said than done
0: sure, sure uh, so that time management component is still really important to you know uh, during the injury recovery rehabilitation time frame yeah.
1: um
0: what um maybe you can talk a little bit about the role of motivation
1: in injury recovery. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's critical. You can't go overboard with it. If that makes sense. For instance, you know, when I was solely a runner and I so I was hurt and I couldn't run, I would tend to do 150% of the volume cross training. So if I was going to run an hour, I'd run an hour. or I would, cross-train an hour and a half that day or for that session Um, and so and I would see the trainers twice a day so like we talked about before all of a sudden you're injured and your workload may have doubled for that day between cross-training and seeing the trainers so it takes a lot of motivation to do that Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd say I was probably more motivated in the past than I am now because for one you know I have a family and other responsibilities so I do try to cut myself a bit of a break. Like I'm not so concerned with staying within my race weight. Like I'll let myself drift up five or 10 pounds or something during an extended injury. Now competition is far away just because it is difficult to sustain that 110% mindset when you aren't doing your sport. So Mm -hmm. I think you have to be realistic with how motivated you ask someone to be.
0: Right. Right. Um, so there, there's a balance to be struck uh, in yeah. terms of you know sort of maintaining the motivation that one has during normal periods or healthy periods versus when they're they're injured. Um, but it also sounds like, and again, kind of coming back to that point about the responsibility uh, being on the shoulder of the athletes. Are there times where that's not always the case, where where athletes sort of kind of have the mindset of putting themselves in the hands of their practitioners and thinking someone else will
1: make them better, or I think they do, and I think that's a recipe for disaster mm-hmm. so you, if If the athlete thinks like okay it's your job to to get me better whoever's job whoever the you know sports med is, they have plenty of do plenty of things to do, plenty of people to see. And they're motivated to work with the people who want to be there, who are motivated as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think it, so it does take a motivation to take control of your, of your rehabilitation to some degree, or else you're just, you're gonna be forgotten. And that's just the nature of things in today's, in collegiate athletics, elite athletics, whatever. There's always someone who, who will step up to, to take your spot, take your place. Take your time with the trainer. Like you have to, you have to be motivated enough to to take care of yourself and to you know to get what you need. Yeah.
0: So just to reiterate your point, the athlete, it's important that they assume control over their recovery, but then also that the athletic trainer or physiotherapist, sport medicine provider, is probably going to be more inclined to wanna spend time or work with the athlete who they believe to be motivated or see that they're motivated?
1: Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um,
0: You've talked a little bit about this, but I wanna ask it explicitly. What are some of the specific kinds of
1: support that injured athletes need during their rehabilitation? They need to know that you still, speaking from a coach perspective, they need to know that you care they need to know that they're on the team they need to know that you're not forgetting about them they need to know that you care about them as a person not just as you know as an athlete or a chunk of meat or whatever who's helping you like improve your coaching record and that's so having that connection with them that personal connection i think plays such an important role -hmm. When you're when you're dealing with injured athletes, because they're they're in a vulnerable state as it is. Yeah.
0: How? how, What are some ways in which a coach or a sport medicine provider can show that they care or demonstrate
1: caring towards an injured athlete? It's as simple as asking, like, "How do you feel? Like, what's on your mind? Like, Mm -hmm. just letting them vent to you might be." might be useful for them right Um, and not telling them to suck it up like let them let them they're in a hard situation you you don't want them to bottle it up you want them to communicate what what they're feeling and so kind of being that that shoulder to cry on so to speak
0: yeah um are, are there other aspects or components of support for the
1: athlete that might be beneficial yeah i mean you you always want to you want to show them the light at the end of the tunnel. you need to communicate like hey you this isn't the end of the world. you can get to where you need to be and these are the steps that we're going to take to get you there mm-hmm. and you want to you want to give them the opportunity to you know to see that they're developing as well you and then to build that competence within them that they can see, okay, they're getting better. This they're right. This isn't the end of the world. I I can do this. So you have to provide that that structure for them to to rehab and to with to to feel like they're getting better and to right. see that they're getting better.
0: So it's important to communicate like a framework for the recovery or the sort of as you mentioned that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and yeah. sort of what what the path or what the progression is. In order to to get to where they want to be,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and and would you say like having that sense of hope or optimism is important for injured athletes?
1: And if so, maybe why? Yeah, I think so. You have to. I mean, you want it to be grounded in somewhat realistic expectations. But mm-hmm. if if they don't have that hope, then most people are, are they're not going to put in that work if they don't think that it's going to amount to anything sure so yeah. even when it looks bleak as long as they have hope that they can get back to be with their teammates in the game situation like or whatever it is they're going to put in that work but if they don't have that hope I, I i'm assuming many people would say well why why even try?
0: Sure. So that sort of hope that's maybe grounded in tangible or realistic um, expectations or or sort of progressions is important behaviorally, it sounds like, because it, that's going to translate into action or sort of the belief that it's worth putting in the effort and therefore the
1: effort kind of ensues as a consequence. Yeah, because I look at the, if if it was the opposite case where, you maybe take away all hope like most people aren't going to if you if you tell your athlete like hey this injury is going to take you out for the rest of the season don't even try to rehabilitate or whatever yeah. I'm they they're probably just they're not going they're going to be like okay well I'm not going to rehab then maybe I'll give yeah. into some of my vices, and what right. I could be a bad spiral so yeah yeah
0: yeah. So on some level, it kind of seems illogical to put in time, energy, and effort into something the
1: athlete doesn't think is going to pay off in the end. Yeah. And again, I think that goes just back to human nature. Yeah, sure.
0: Um, so um, I just want to touch on a, a few other points and I appreciate your insights. You have uh, some really great thoughts and comments and, and uh vast experience. So, um yeah this is great. Um as a coach or as a treatment provider how how would you know when the athlete is ready to return to sport after their
1: injury? That's tough in my sport especially on the bike if you're being tentative that can in draft legal bike racing which is the comp- the bike component of the triathlon. That can be dangerous for you and for those around you, so you know you need to build up that confidence before I think you return to sport and you see that in training sessions, you see that in simulations of competitions, so you need to you slowly progress right so say you're just reintroducing yourself back to the bike and you you slowly put yourself in more competition like scenarios, and as the coach i'm You know, observing, saying like, "Okay, you're you're not quite ready. Let's take a step back and maybe practice a bit more." So, really, it's just as a coach, you need to know the demands of the sport, and you use your best judgment to see like, is this person, are they going to put themselves, are they safe to return, are they putting themselves in a good position to, to do so? And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's it. It's not a black or white, black or white. Sure sure
0: so you mentioned confidence i guess from the injured athlete perspective what do they need to be confident in to be able to return to sport
1: i think they need to be confident in their abilities primarily like Mm -hmm. are they are they have they regained their fitness and their their skill set necessary to be competitive maybe not back to where they used to be but at least are have they regained it enough that they're not going to embarrass themselves because that's i think at the forefront or it's somewhere in everyone's minds that they don't want to embarrass themselves and they know that they could be judged by their past performances or their past fitness so you it, it goes back to you have to give them the opportunity to build up that confidence
0: okay so confidence in their ability to perform at a certain level of of proficiency or ability is is
1: pretty paramount or important yeah and as the coach you have to you you should set up situations where they can perform Mm -hmm. well like you want them to have opportunities to succeed so that you're building up building up confidence rather than taking it away right right so as a coach kind of
0: creating the circumstances in which the athlete can build their confidence prior to return is, is part of the job or task.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to throw them straight into the fire. And you have to know your athletes. Some people might respond better to more difficult initial challenges. And some athletes might want to feel like they're, you know, just take very, very slow steps. Like for me, when I was learning how getting more familiar with, uh, the sport of triathlon my coach would always want to like throw me right into the fire kind of like you know and i i was always i'm more methodical and i like to, to go at a slower pace i'd always have to be like can i let let's take a step back and like yeah. i want to just ease into it and that that's just my mindset i don't think one mindset's necessarily better than the other some people like that baptism under fire or however that saying is but mm-hmm. i i i I, I'm less of a risk taker now than I used to be. So I'd I like to be more methodical about how, I, how I, I learn a skill. And I think that's the same as someone coming back from an injury. Some people might like to be like, okay, throw me back in. Let's see where I'm at. And some people might like to slowly build it back up. So you have to know your athlete.
0: Mm-hmm. We talked just briefly at the start of our conversation that your doctoral research was on that idea of growth through adversity—Are um, there benefits
1: to injury or any upsides to it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you learn—you learn, you learn about—you learn a lot about yourself uh, when you're in your darkest moments, and um, for committed athletes, that's what injury is. It's one of your darkest moments. So, there's also can not saying that everyone is going to benefit but there's certainly those who i think the research shows can and do benefit and ideally you you want to you want to put them in situations where they can benefit and not in situations where they're just going to feel lost and helpless and be worse off for the situation yeah
0: um yeah that's great um other any other possible benefits to injury or is that the beam?
1: Yeah, I I think if you relate it even to the coronavirus situation right now, are there benefits to this? Well, a lot of people, obviously there's a ton of negative consequences, but a lot of people are spending a lot more time with their families. Um, You know, I'm outside teaching my one daughter how to ride a bike working on the other daughter being potty trained. And these are things that perhaps I should have done a a few months or so ago, but the world was normal back then and I was much busier. So I think it's the same thing with injuries. Like maybe you can explore some of your other interests. You can um, develop other aspects of yourself that you were maybe neglecting because you were so 100% into this one thing.
0: Mm Yeah. Great. Or just a couple final questions here, Chris, Uh, would you say there are identifiable factors that distinguish athletes who make a successful return to sport after injury versus those that don't?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I think, I don't know that a level of grit, determination, I'm going to say is characteristic of those who do make that return, especially depending on the severity of the injury. A lot of, if you're not a determined person, if you're, then you're probably not going to want to put up with some of the, the rehabilitation that serious injuries, you know, entail. So, and I guess that's, if you're, I I guess that off the top of my head that would be the most important thing how committed determined you are
0: okay so sort of kind of characteristics that the athlete has within them determination you mentioned grit might be important kind of factors in distinguishing or, or differentiating the path that they take after injury
1: yeah and just that general mindset of do you see challenges as a you know as a barrier that cannot be Penetrated or something to be overcome. I think right. some people have that mindset that, you know, a challenge is something to be overcome, where other people see a challenge and turn around.
0: Mm. So, and, and of course, injury being one significant challenge, as you've discussed, that, you know, if, if you have the mindset of overcoming challenge, then maybe that will um, sort of determine the, the path one takes after their injury
1: yeah yeah it can be either and i think this is i I don't want to take credit for this but it's like the the toll booth or the roadblock type mentality Mm -hmm. like is it a toll you have to pay and then you can get through and continue on with your sport or is it a roadblock that you can't and it's just it's how one sees it
0: yeah yeah so again kind of that the perspective that one adopts can be important it sounds like in, in their recovery and i I think that's a, you know, a good analogy, uh, with the toll booth, um, last question. If you were to share one piece of advice with injured athletes, what would it be?
1: It's not the end of the world, <laughs> I guess. Um, I would say look at those around you. There's so many examples of highly, highly successful people, not just in sport, but in, every domain of life who've experienced serious setbacks and go on to reach higher greater heights than they have before mm-hmm. so it's not the end of the world although it might seem like it at the time
0: yeah great chris i appreciate uh again your wonderful insights and uh yeah you bring a really unique perspective given your background as a researcher working in an academic setting, coaching as a two-time Olympian, Paralympian. Uh, and I know you're still training and, and, and working towards uh, the next summer uh, games. So um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate
1: it. I'm happy to help.